welcome and thank you for joining us on our first installment of The Data Day from Ropes and Gray, a podcast series brought to you by the Data Privacy and Cybersecurity Practice at Ropes. In this podcast, we'll discuss exciting and interesting developments in the world of data. We feature attorneys at Ropes and Gray, as well as clients, regulators, and other industry leaders in conversation about what is new in the world of data. I'm Fran Fairclaw, the partner in Ropes and Gray's data privacy and cybersecurity practice. And I'm based in our Washington, D.C. office. I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Edward Machen, who's based in our London office. Thanks, Fran, and thanks to everyone who's tuned in. So for our first episode, we're going to do things a little differently from what we expect will be our normal programming, and that is to celebrate World Data Protection Day, which takes place on Saturday, the 28th of January. We thought it would be fun to ask our clients, our contacts and colleagues to send us their questions and comments to answer uh, the things that they didn't want to ask or, or didn't know they needed to ask. We're not going to be able to answer them all, so we've chosen four of the questions that we were asked more than once to discuss on this episode. And then we'll finish up with the first entry in what will be a regular feature of the podcast, that is sharing the most interesting, the best, or even the strangest things in privacy, data protection, and security that Fran and I have seen or heard about recently. Before we jump in, we want to say a few words on the name of our podcast, The Data Day. Even though it's called The Data Day, it will not be daily, I'm afraid. But we will be discussing the day-to-day effects data is having, particularly as data is now firmly a part of all of our daily lives. We're kicking it off, as Edward said, in honor of World Data Protection Day, which happens annually. But we don't think once a year is enough, so we're making day-to-day a monthly event. The purpose of these podcasts is going to be to provide updates on the data protection issues that come up all around us every day. So, Fran, why don't you kick things off with our first question? Great. Well, let's start with everyone's desire for mere adequacy. I'd never have thought adequacy would be everyone's legal goal, but for businesses in the U.S. that want to do business or collect data from the EU, adequacy is now the golden ticket. Last December, we saw the European Commission issue its proposed adequacy decision for the U.S. based on President Biden's executive order that implemented the new U.S.-EU data transfer framework. But we're not quite over the line yet, are we? What are the steps left before the U.S. is adequate? And how likely do you think it is we're going to cross that line? As you mentioned, Fran, the Commission issued its long-awaited adequacy decision in December 2022, and that will now go through a review process, including from the European Data Protection Board, EU member states, and the European Parliament. We think that will take, or at least we hope it will take, about six months, so we may have a finalised adequacy decision at some point during the summer of this year. Will that be approved? We think yes, although the decision will inevitably be driven by both legal and political considerations. And do you think there will be a Shrimp 3? I do love a trilogy. I do think that that's an inevitability at this point, but unless the case is fast-tracked to the European Court, businesses will likely have a couple of years, hopefully of relative safety, before they go through the whole process again. And I do think it's worth saying that the Schrems saga that's now been rumbling on for a number of years shows that the current system of countries granting each other unilateral adequacy really isn't fit for purpose in the long run. Uh, But that's a conversation, I think, for another episode. Indeed. Now, Fran, we've received a number of questions on the same theme. Firstly, 
how should companies comply with the patchwork of US privacy laws that are going into effect this year? And secondly, the $64 million question, will we see a federal privacy law passed in 2023? Well, I'm going to take the second part first. I'm not putting any money on a federal law passing in 2023. Uh, we've seen how hard it is for the House of Representatives just to figure out who is going to lead them. I don't think they're going to be able to pass a comprehensive data privacy law. I could be proven wrong, but I'm not putting any money on it. That said, I think the push for a federal law has really lit a fire for many states. We already have, you know, comprehensive data privacy laws that have passed in five states, California, Virginia, Colorado, Connecticut, and Utah, and eight more states are now considering similar broad consumer data privacy bills. Those are Indiana, Iowa, Kentucky, Mississippi, New York, Oklahoma, Oregon, and Tennessee. Most of those are bills that were filed last session and have now come back. Some other states are also considering more limited bills focused on topics like children's privacy, or we've even seen in Maryland and Mississippi, they're considering biometric privacy bills similar to Illinois' law that we've seen be the focus of so many lawsuits in the past year. States are also focused on things like health privacy and automated decision-making. So there, there is a lot of activity on the state front. When it comes to complying with the patchwork of laws, there is a basic model starting to emerge that I think is helpful to clients. And the principles of this aren't that far off from GDPR. A lot of it is based on the 2021 Washington Privacy Act, which did look to GDPR as a model. And even though these other states haven't followed California's model yet, California does still cover more people than these other states. So it, it will it will take a few more states before a clear model emerges. But to avoid the patchwork, I think there are some principles that businesses can apply. I mean, first of all, they should, businesses can determine what laws actually apply to them. There are different thresholds for compliance under the different state laws, like the Virginia and California. And most of the states also have exclusions for compliance with certain federal laws like HIPAA and GLBA. Some of the core compliance projects that companies can pursue to get to, you know, 90% of compliance with the entire patchwork of laws are things like data mapping that, you know, companies that already did a big GDPR compliance project may have in place. Uh, in particular, companies need to be mapping, you know, what they're sharing, their data, any data profiling they do, any high-risk activities, and they need to know who the vendors are that they're sharing with. And then in terms of records retention, companies should be paying a lot of attention to revising their record retention programs because these laws really focus on data minimization and revising vendor contracts. Because as I said, it's very important to know who you're sharing with and how they're using the data. And finally, making sure companies have assessed their opt-out and consent requirements, the linchpin of a lot of this patchwork of data law is making sure that people know what data is being collected about them, how it's being used, and have the opportunity to make decisions about that. So that could require companies to do a pretty granular assessment of their opt-out and consent requirements. Well, there's certainly a lot to digest there. It sounds like you and your fellow U.S. lawyers will be very busy in 2023. Uh, the next question we have is short and to the point, Fran. 
should businesses pay ransomware demands? That is certainly what our clients are wanting to know, and they're wanting to know what other companies are doing. We saw a report just today that fewer companies hit by ransomware seem to be making the payments demanded by hackers. That's according to research from blockchain forensics firm Chainalysis, which estimates that ransom payments are down 40%. So that would be from 765.6 million in 2021 to 456.8 million in 2022. That's a huge drop. And it doesn't look like that decrease is a result of attacks being down, or at least not um, to that high of a percentage. But it may just be that fewer victim organizations are paying the ransom. This could be because more organizations are able to obtain the keys without paying ransom. There's been a, there's been a lot of kind of uh, organizations fighting back and and trying to figure out ransom key, ransomware keys and sharing those. There's also been organizations that have had sufficient backups to just rebuild without needing the key, and so it really kind of takes the sting out of the attackers' demands. So threat actors are trying to get around this by doing a double extortion demand where they say that payment is required both to give you the key, but also that if you don't pay for the key, they'll release your data. And for some companies, you can imagine like hospitals or companies that have very sensitive data, like health data, that's a problem. And that will prompt them to pay because it could have really disastrous effects if that sensitive information was released widely. But some companies where that's, the data is maybe slightly less sensitive and they recognize that the data is already in the hands of, a of an attacker and so may already need to be disclosed as a breach, that additional threat of publication for some of those companies may not be enough incentive for them to pay the ransom. So that may be why companies are more hesitant to pay the ransom these days. Yes, that makes sense. And as you say, there's never a one-size-fits-all scenario. Every breach is different, and the considerations also are rarely the same. Uh, listeners may remember that the UK ICO recently told lawyers in the UK to advise their clients not to pay ransom payments. And so it's going to be really interesting to see whether that position tracks through in the coming months and years. Yeah, we'll certainly be watching that closely. Well, lastly, and notwithstanding that our excellent Chinese privacy colleagues aren't with us today, we've been asked whether we're seeing an increased awareness of the various PRC data and cyber laws among our clients and counterparties. What have you been seeing, Edward? Well, the answer is that it really is still very early days. Uh, so to give you an example, we often see when we're revising clients, either in China or, or with a Chinese presence, that their counterparties may not have thought as much about their ability to send data outside China uh, and what needs to be done to ensure compliance with PIPL. Uh, but rather than getting over my skis, uh, if you do have questions, please reach out to the ROATS team in China who are regularly advising on this. The thing I do think, though, that it shows is that the GDPR being the one global law and the main uh, statute that folks are worried about or focused on are long gone. Uh, so even within the EU and the UK, we have the alphabet soup of laws that are either taking effect soon uh, or are in negotiations. Uh, the DMA, the DSA, DORA, NIS, uh, and that's just within Europe. So there's a huge proliferation of laws that are coming, both in 2023 and beyond. Uh, and I really do think that the GDPR at this stage will, will increasingly uh, become distant in the wing mirror when taking into account all of these other laws. 
So, Fran, now I get to ask you a question of my own. Uh, what's the strangest, the most interesting, uh, or the best thing that you've seen or heard about in privacy in the last couple of weeks? So, I think I'm going to have to go with what is most strange or uh, interesting and surprising. I have been, frankly, amazed by the way that plaintiffs have been using VPPA, the Video Privacy Protection Act, to file suits against companies that could not be farther from video rental services. So by way of background for our listeners who aren't in the U.S. or who aren't as old as me and don't remember riding their bicycles to Blockbuster as a kid to get a video rental, the VPPA is definitely not a modern data law. It was passed after uh, then D.C. Circuit Judge Robert Bork's video rental history was actually published by a Washington, D.C. paper during his Supreme Court nomination. His Supreme Court nomination obviously failed then, uh, but it did prompt Congress to pass this law, which was aimed at videotape rental store viewing records and protecting the privacy of those. But the business facing these lawsuits now are hardly those blockbuster stores I rode my bike to as a kid. Just last month, we saw lawsuits filed against businesses like Lazy Boy and American Girl Dolls. These, these are companies that, you know, they have some video content, some commercials on their website, but the lawsuits are alleging that because they also have tracking pixels on their website and transmit information to third parties about how users interact with their websites, that that transmission violates the Video Privacy Protection Act. It is a very strange use of this act that I would never have seen coming last year. So it's interesting, and we'll be watching this area of the law closely, where there haven't been many cases that have gone through the courts, and the cases are getting increasingly farther away from video content. So I think these cases started with companies that were more focused on providing some kind of video content. But now we've gotten to things like recliners and dolls that don't really have a lot to do with videos at all. So it will be an interesting area to watch in the coming year. Yeah, very interesting. How about you? What have you been finding the most interesting or strange in the world of data? So as you probably know, most lawyers in the EU or the UK have their crazy, the GDPR should not apply in this type of scenario story. Uh, and I had a good one last week when I spoke to an in-house lawyer contact at a toys business aimed at toddlers. Uh, she was telling me that uh, at their business, they've recently had an internal discussion about whether a social media influencer needs to obtain consent from their child to appear in the video. So putting aside the fact that that's not legally required, uh, speaking from personal experience here, good luck getting your three-year-old to sit still and not to scribble on your consent form. Definitely. If you could see my passport, there are a couple of uh, pages that my daughter scribbled on when she was three. So I completely agree with that. Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. But before we finish, I'd like to say a big thank you to everyone who listened to our first episode of The Day to Day from Ropes and Gray. We certainly had a lot of fun. Uh, you can subscribe and listen to this series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. And if you would like to join us for an episode or you know somebody who we need to have on the show, please reach out to me or Edward via email or LinkedIn. We're here for your suggestions. Fully agreed. We would love to hear from you. 
And until next time, thank you for listening.